Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 31. In the last episode, I wrapped up the Philistines in the text of the Bible, finally finishing all of their mentions in the Old Testament, and the one word that described all of their mentions in the New Testament, none. After that, I began covering what we know about them from the outside record, which, in totality, is far less than what we can glean from the Old Testament, but still worth our time. In this episode, I'll get mostly through wrapping up the outside record, and with that, let's get started. Last week, I finished with a few things that are known about the Philistines, including their economy, and mentions in the inscriptions and records from Egypt and Assyria, along with a few other places. This week, I'll begin with something a little different, their language, and where the name Philistia and the people known as the Philistines, where all that comes from. In the last episode, I covered how the Egyptian name for the Philistines was the Peleset, which is very similar to the ancient Hebrew word Peleshet. What I didn't get to was how we derived Philistine from that. The English name Philistine was borrowed from the old French Philistine, which came from classical Latin, Philistinus. This was from late Greek, which I'm sure I'll massacre the pronunciation, but here goes, Philistinoi. So, over the thousands of years that transpired in between, only a few changes. It's thought the Greek word came from the Hebrew, which was not only similar to the Egyptian name for the people, but also the Akkadian name, Palestu. Like I covered many episodes ago, it's nearly the same etymological path followed by the word Palestine. And while I'm on the subject a little about their language, and to be succinct, nothing is really known about their language, which is telling in that no written artifacts have been uncovered. There are pottery fragments from the period of between about 1500 and 1000 BC, and these have been found bearing inscriptions in non-Sabetic languages, including one in a Cipro-Minoan script. Given the time and place, this would likely be from people we think of as the Philistines. As for the Cipro-Minoan script, that's Cyprus, and certainly points towards a migration from that island to Canaan. Sea peoples? Anyone? You can also read into what's found in the biblical text, or more clearly, what's not found. And that's that the Philistines and Hebrews had no problem communicating with each other, despite Babel. Also pointing towards a common origin language, like Semitic, though there is a smattering of words found in the Hebrew text of the Old Testament attributed to the Philistines that do not appear to be of Semitic origin, leading many to lean on the European language brought with them during an earlier migration. How to make sense of this? The simplest answer is more likely, aka Occam's razor. In this case, perhaps, and assuming they did migrate from Cyprus, or somewhere else in Europe, then they would have brought that language with them. Over time, and it could have been in rather short order, they could have added local words to their language. 
with the tongues more closely resembling each other as time passed. Out of necessity, especially for trade and the like, and also via intermarriage. Then there's the issue of the names given to them in the biblical text. Many of the names, such as Ahimelech, Mententai, Hanun, and Dagon, these appear to be Semitic. Others, such as Goliath, Achish, Phicol, don't have Semitic traits. Perhaps Indo-European, a true mixed bag. Now keep in mind that the Hebrew-speaking Israelites do have language difficulties with other groups during the Babylonian captivity, though this is not as telling as the Israelites and Philistines had been neighbors, with commonly one under the other for hundreds of years by the time King Nebuchadnezzar enacted his exile. Of course, the Philistines are found in the Old Testament, in the Masoretic text, but that's not all. It's also in the Greek version, the Septuagint, though with fewer mentions. Instead, in the Septuagint, in many cases, instead of referring to the people by the specific name Philistine, they are instead mentioned by a broader term of being from an outside tribe, thought to refer to people more generically as simply living in Canaan a total of about 269 such references. Philistine is also found in the Samaritan Pentateuch. It can be found in texts outside of the Bible, including the Aramaic visions of Amram. And considering I may never get to these documents again, they're worth a few minutes of time. The visions of Amram are a collection of five extremely fragmented texts that were found in a cave on a cliff face of the Dead Sea, the western side of that saline body. If this sounds familiar, it's the same place that the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, though they are different in that the visions of Amram are written in Aramaic. Most of the Dead Sea Scrolls were written in Hebrew, though a few were in Aramaic. All of them are thought to have been written in the 2nd century BC, and as for the visions of Amram, they apparently contain several copies of the same text, which is fortunate as considering they are rather fragmented and many pieces are missing. But the several copies does allow for a more thorough piecing together of the text. But even with that, there isn't enough left for a completely coherent copy. Many researchers have attempted to fill in the blanks, but most of those are met with a combination of skepticism and controversy. But still, what does remain is nonetheless interesting. The text on these scrolls were first published in 1972, and they relate stories as told by Amram to his sons, Moses and Aaron. Yes, those brothers. There's no mention of where Miriam was when the tales were being spun. When he's telling the stories, Amram is on his deathbed and trying to impart his wisdom to his sons. At the time, Amram was said to be 136 years old. Before he was in his deathbed, but earlier in the same year, Amram gave his 30-year-old daughter, Miriam, to his brother Uziel so they could marry. The wedding celebration lasted a week. 
After the feast, Amram called for his children and began to recollect the story of his time in Egypt. Amram tells his son, Aaron, to summon his son, Maljijah. After he does this, Amram tells him that he will give them wisdom. In this story, Amram and Kohath go to Canaan from Egypt to build tombs for those who have perished in Egypt. Amram stayed in Canaan to finish the tombs while Kohath left for Egypt due to the threat of war. Amram was unable to go back to his wife and family in Egypt for 41 years until the war between Egypt, Canaan, and Philistia was over. And there it is, Philistia and the Philistines. Next in the text, Amram presents his vision. He tells of two divine figures fighting over fate of his judgment. Amram inquires about their claimed authority and challenges their rule in his life. In apparent unison, the figures declare their rule over humanity and offer him a choice of destiny. One presents himself as Belial, the prince of darkness, and also named Melchishara, the king of evil who is empowered over all darkness. The other divine figure, named Melchizedek, is the Prince of Light and King of Righteousness. He rules over the light, naturally. Amram tells his audience that as soon as he awoke from this dream, the vision, he wrote it down. Amram also tells his gathered sons and grandson of the difference between the light and the darkness, he tells them that the sons of light will be made light, and sons of darkness will be made dark. Sons of light are destined for light and joy, while sons of darkness are destined for death and darkness. He then explains how light will triumph over darkness, and it is declared that the son of darkness will be destroyed. And that's his vision. There are theories about its origin. First, given that there were multiple copies stored away in the cave, it's likely the texts were considered important to whoever put them there. The theme of dualism, good and evil, light and darkness, seemed central to the people who lived in the region at the time. In their society, the people of Qumram thought the light and the darkness were in constant battle. They also thought that God would determine who eventually emerged victorious, as seen in Amram's vision, this was tilted towards the light. The vision of Amram depicts a scene of two divine figures who claim to rule all humanity. These figures are extensively reflected in significant Qumran literature, such as the community rule, where the theme of dualism was obvious. The extremely fragmented literature, given its early origins, could have had huge implications on the way dualism developed in Qumran. Unfortunately, due to its very incomplete nature, most of the insights on dualism garnered from these documents lead to just as much speculation as real understanding. One such is the somewhat common belief that the people of Qumran tended to believe in predestination, though the text seems to indicate that there is a choice free will. Combine this predestination with the seeming free will in the document, and you end up with a look into a complex society, more than would be expected without the fragmented story. 
One other tidbit concerning this text about Amram. The non-canonical, at least for Western and Eastern Christian churches, Book of Jubilees, may have used this text as the source of one of its chapters. The Book of Jubilees is considered canonical by the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. It's also sometimes called the Lesser Genesis due to the parallels in the text. Moving along. Of course, the reason I brought this up is that the fragmented text did mention Philistia, and this was written well after the Philistines, along with the Hebrews, were exiled to Babylon. There's also archaeological evidence of the Philistines. No surprise there, as they inhabited a defined area for hundreds of years. In the western part of the Jezreel Valley, at least 23 sites have yielded what's thought to be Philistine pottery, found in the vast majority of the dig sites in this small region. These sites date to between the 12th and 10th centuries BC. While the initial impression is that the pottery is evidence that they lived there, researchers have taken it a step further, attributing the presence of Philistine pottery in northern Israel to their role as mercenaries for the Egyptians during their military administration of the land in the 12th century BC. This was prior to their encounters with the Israelites in the Old Testament. After this, they likely stayed, occupying the land as the Israelites exited Egypt and began their wandering. The thinking is that they grew their territory before the Israelites arrived in Canaan, a growth that came at the expense of their neighbors, people like the Moabites, among others. But to be clear, the actual quantity of uncovered Philistine pottery is rather small. To explain this, researchers think they may have blended in, potentially intermarried with other resident tribes, and even adopted their pottery and language, potentially as early as the 12th century BC. This would place them in the Jezreel Valley at this time, about a century earlier than the generally agreed-upon date of the Battle of Gilboa. This is the battle where they not only defeated the Israelites, but also killed King Saul and three of his sons, at the same place as the uncovered pottery. More on that in a minute. The Philistines merited a mention on a stela found in the Egyptian Valley of the Kings, on the stela, they were associated with the people known as the Taresh, where both are mentioned as sailing on the sea, assumed to be the Mediterranean and indicative that they were a seafaring people that immigrated to Egypt. The Taresh are thought to have been from Anatolia, so at least in this case, some believe the Philistines were too. There's also an Egyptian papyrus that mentions the Peliset, their name for the people thought to be the Philistines. The papyrus records that Ramses III reduced the Peliset to ashes, which, as it likely turns out, wasn't quite literal, as it also says they were enslaved by the Egyptians and resettled into fortresses. I mentioned this a couple of episodes ago, and also when I covered the Sea Peoples. Both of these writings have led to two slightly different interpretations, the first is the one I just mentioned, that they were taken as captives and settled in Egypt, and the second is that the Sea Peoples moved 
on from Egypt on their own accord and seized territory in Canaan, becoming the Philistines. Of course, the truth could lie somewhere in between, like Pharaoh Ramses III settled them in Canaan as mercenaries, a hired force to maintain control over Egyptian territory in the region. And if we go with the settling in Canaan theory, there are researchers who go as far as to identify temples to Amun, maybe in the city of Gaza. But the more detailed that any of the proposed theories have, well, the more speculative it becomes. Which remains one of the biggest problems with most of the Egyptian mentions. They say the Peleset were resettled to strongholds, but no indication is given as to where these were, except in a single place, and that's the Omastikon of Amino. This is an Egyptian papyrus from sometime spanning between the late 20th to the 22nd dynasty. The document is an administrative categorization of 610 entities organized hierarchically. In my mind, a modern equivalent would be an org chart. It has been pieced together from 10 fragments, including versions on papyrus, board, leather, and pottery. And the reason I bring it up here is that one particular section lists out the following people and places. Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gaza, Assyria, Shaburu, Sherdan, Tijekur, Peleset, Kumra. Of course, the Peleset could have been the Philistines. And the cities of Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Gaza were three of the five cities of the Philistine Pentapolis mentioned in the Old Testament. Gath and Ekron are the missing two. And that's it from the Egyptian record, but I'm not quite done. In Syria, a recently uncovered statue of a king named Taita has been found. And by recent, I mean it was uncovered in 2003. The statue has inscriptions that were in the Luwian language. I've touched on the Luwians a couple of times, but as a refresher, they originated in Anatolia, and are not well understood, but considering that fragments, and even sometimes whole cloth of their language has been found in Assyria, it's assumed they first came into contact with the Assyrians, then were absorbed. They're never mentioned in the biblical text, and little is really known about them in the greater historic record. So, for those reasons alone, it's likely I'll never really cover them, Though, if they do pop up again, there may be a critical mass event, and I'll reserve that right to take the several minutes it would take. As for now, I need to keep plowing ahead. The king's statue was uncovered in the city of Aleppo by a German archaeologist and at a site understood to be an ancient fortress. There are various interpretations of the text, but the most widely accepted is that the statue is of a king known as Taita, who ruled over a city-state, or perhaps a much larger area, and his kingdom was known as Palestine. Naturally, this name is connected with the biblical Philistines. This country existed during the 11th and 10th centuries BC, at least. Its territory was from the Amuk Valley in the west to Aleppo in the east, down to Meharda and Shizer in the south. This would make it somewhat larger than how Philistia is presented in the Old Testament text. 
Though, like we've seen several times, both in and out of the text, boundaries were very fluid, moving in a favorable direction to whichever side won the last battle. To this end, there is a theory that King David halted the Arameans' expansion into territory held by the various tribes of Israel, and he did this via his alliance with the southern Philistine kings, as well as Toy, the king of Hamath, who is thought to be alternatively known as Tita II, the king of Palestine. This is linked to the proposal that the Palestine were a branch of the Sea Peoples, specifically those who settled in the northern regions of Canaan. To me, at least, this theory is somewhat compelling. Not everyone sees it that way, though. The opposing view is that other than the similar name, there is no compelling archaeological evidence linking Palestine with the Philistines. Instead, they propose that most of the evidence, at least that uncovered at the Palestine capital, located on a tell named Teyane, indicate that it was a Neo-Hittite state. They go on to say that the names of the kings of Palestine seem to indicate a Hittite relationship, too. Of course, academics do what academics do, and another came up with a potential third, albeit partially hybrid theory. Based on archaeological finds, it's been proposed that a branch of the Philistines settled in the northern Canaan region, but were replaced by, or potentially assimilated into, a new Luwian population who took over the Palestine name. Given that we're over 3,000 years past this, unless there are significant finds in the future, we're likely never to know what really happened. And then we make it full circle back to the theory that the Philistines were part of a larger migration event from the greater Aegean area. Besides the Egyptian inscriptions and writings that seem to indicate this, there are many scholars that have interpreted the ceramic and technological evidence found in uncovered artifacts as being of Philistine origin and may indicate a large-scale immigration from the Aegean to southern Canaan, probably from Anatolia and Cyprus, and likely in the 12th century BC, about the time of the Bronze Age collapse I covered many episodes ago. So, let's dive into this for a bit. The suggested connection between the pre-Greek Mycenaean and the Philistines is not only supported by all that I've covered thus far, but there have also been uncovered artifacts in the ruins of the ancient Philistine cities of Ashdod, Ekron, Ashkelon, and more recently Gath, four of the five Philistine cities in Canaan, the Pentapolis. From this list, the only one missing is Gaza. Recall that an Egyptian papyrus I covered earlier in this episode was missing both Ekron and Gath. Now we've got all of the Old Testament pentapolis being covered in the outside record. Towards the beginning of the episode, I briefly mentioned how pottery found in Canaan dating to the period resembles that found in the same time in Greece. To be more accurate, from the area that would later be known as Greece, most of this similarity is in the colors and designs used to adorn the pottery. The same shades of brown and black, and in a few cases, red. Though, to be clear, this pottery is intermixed with pottery that is clearly locally sourced. What does this mean? No one really knows. 
It could be that the Aegean pots were brought via trade, or that Aegean settlers made some of their own and sourced some locally, or that Aegean settlers were in the minority of a larger culture. Like I said, who knows? This pottery would be found in Canaan as late as the early Bronze Age, so well after the arrival of the Israelites back from Egypt. But most of the similarities aren't limited to pottery. In Ekrid, there are also the remnants of a large, well-constructed building covering some 2,600 square feet, 240 square meters. Its walls are wide, possibly designed to support a second story. And it also has an elaborate entrance that leads to a large hall. This hall is partially covered with a roof supported on a row of columns. There are also other unusual architectural features, such as benches and podiums. In the floor of the hall is a circular hearth paved with small stones. Pebbles, really. All of this is very similar to Mycenaean Megaron hall buildings. But that's not all. Also found in the Ekron ruins were three small bronze wheels, each with eight spokes. Such wheels are known to have been used for portable religious podiums in the Aegean region during this period. These found in Canaan are thought to have served the same purpose. An inscription in Ekron may refer to an ancient Mycenaean goddess. Other excavations in Ashkelon, Ekron, and Gath have uncovered piles of dog and pig bones, which show signs of having been butchered, implying that these animals were part of the resident's diet. Sorry, Fido. A diet similar to that found at the time in Mycenae, but not typical in Canaan. There were also wineries where fermented wine was produced, as well as looms that resemble those of Mycenaean sites. All of this is very compelling, of a potential link between ancient pre-Greece and the Philistines, and provides a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll, hopefully, wrap up the Philistines. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.